0: Okay, uh, this is Judge Lopez back on the record in core scientific. Give everyone a moment to get settled in again. Okay. Mr. Carlson, can you just either give me a thumbs up or just acknowledge that you can hear me? I just want to make sure that we can all hear each other.
1: Yep, we can hear you.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so before the court is consideration um, of the fourth amended joint Chapter 11 plan uh, filed by Core Scientific and, and its affiliated debtors, uh, the court has jurisdiction under 28 USC 1334. This is certainly a court proceeding uh, consideration of plan confirmation under 28 USC 157B2. Um, there's been proper notice of today's hearing, and based upon the declarations uh, that have been submitted and certificates of service, the court will take judicial notice of them. There's been proper uh, notice of today's hearing and required service have all required documents uh, in connection with uh, plan confirmation. Um, the court notes that um, the debtors seek a couple of things today. Uh, one is final approval of the disclosure statement, and then second, confirmation of the plan. Um, court notes that on November, maybe it was November 17th, um, it was, November 17th, at docket number 1447. This court uh, entered an order scheduling a, condo- a combined hearing on the adequacy of the disclosure statement in confirmation of the plan. The court, in- at that um, connection uh, with that order, I also conditionally approved the disclosure statement, but I also approved the form and the manner of the disclosure statement I established on a final basis um, Solicitation and voting procedures, uh, notice and objection procedures for uh, objecting to the plan, uh, and also uh, some procedures regarding rights offerings and notice procedures regarding the rejection of executory contracts, um, or either assumption or rejection of, of executory contracts here. Um, in terms of the votes, um, and the court considers the declarations uh, that have been submitted in connection with plan confirmation there is certainly overwhelming support for this chapter 11 plan Um, it certainly is the result uh, based upon the statements that have been submitted to the court in connection with the declarations uh, plenty of work uh, a lot of hard work has gone into this so congratulations to all the professionals uh, for incredibly hard work uh, placed in connection with this case Um, Certainly want to thank Judge Isker, uh, a tirelessly hard worker. Um, still here at 6.30 in the morning, uh, despite a freeze. Um, uh, just just kind of, just what he does. And so I express my appreciation to Judge Isker for um, his work in connection with that. Certainly um, the parties have as well. Um, let me just note, and I'll start with, the disclosure statement, and there's one objection to the disclosure statement, uh, uh no, but I know by the Hoffman parties also to plain confirmation, um, but I'll start with the disclosure statement in section. I, again, I, I start as always with the text, uh, Fifth Circuit and, as I say, Supreme Court have always, um, said we start with the text and that the text is always the alpha and the court is to presume that Congress meant Uh, What it said in a statute and nothing, and read it literally. So, um, we turn to section 1125 of the Bankruptcy Code uh, to determine whether um, a disclosure statement contains adequate information. Uh, And adequate information is defined as containing the type of information to allow a um, hypothetical creditor or investor of those who are entitled to vote. To whether to make an informed decision as to whether to vote to accept uh, or reject the plan, um, based upon my review of the disclosure statement um, and the declarations that were submitted. Uh, and I would note that each of the declarations um, were admitted without objection. Uh, parties were here, could have been cross-examined. Uh, no party elected to cross-examine any witnesses. So those Uh, statements in those declarations uh, as a matter of evidence are unrefuted uh, based upon um, the record before the court Um, the disclosure statement does contain adequate information. There is more than enough information about the history of the debtors, the proposed treatment of uh, creditors and equity holders will receive under the plan. Um, There is information about tax consequences, um, matters that have been conducted in connection with the case. There are large and bold statements about the proposed exculpations and the proposed, um, consensual third party releases that the plan, uh, provides information about, um, plan classes and, and, um, history about the mediation as well. I take comfort, um, that the disclosure statement uh, was reviewed uh, by two active committees in this case, right? You had the unsecured creditors committee and you had an equity committee, and both who uh, played very active roles in connection with this case, and and no objection uh, was submitted by, by those parties. That's not determinative, um, but it does give the court uh, some comfort uh, that two um, committees with fiduciary duties to the estate and to their constituencies Um, reviewed it and took a hard look at this disclosure statement. Um, I'm going to overrule the objection, uh, Fahman Hoffman parties. Uh, it's really a plan confirmation objection. They don't really object to the language. They just object to what the proposed plan does to their, um, to, um, these securities plaintiffs. So I'm going to overrule the objection. Um, disclosure statements, um, this disclosure statement is is long, but this there's a lot going on in this case, and um, I don't believe um, that this disclosure statement um, was in any way intended to confuse anyone. I think it was tra- parties tried to write it in plain English, um, and, and really there were charts uh, in the disclosure statement that provided um, helpful summaries uh, for parties um, there, and so you could quickly see... What you're going to receive under the plan and i would note um, this plan is providing an, a tremendous recovery for unsecured creditors i'm now shifting gears into um, the plan confirmation so i'm approving the disclosure statement uh, on a final basis as containing adequate information within the meaning of section 1125 the record supports it the court has done an independent review of that disclosure statement, and I believe it does contain adequate information. Uh, and then the sole objecting party, uh, I find, is really objecting to plan confirmation uh, to the words, not to the adequacy of the information contained therein. Uh, so now we turn to plan confirmation. And for plan confirmation, you, you you really look at a couple of different sections of the Bankruptcy Code. Um, you know, look at Section 1123, uh, which provides what a plan. Uh, has to provide and, and what a plan may provide and for uh based upon the declarations again all unrefuted uh and the court's independent review of that plan the plan does contain um all of the required provisions uh within section uh section 1123a i would note that section 1123b uh provides what a plan may provide uh and one of the things it does is include any other provision, not inconsistent with the applicable provisions of this title. So you can provide for things that the code doesn't expressly say uh, need to be included so long as um, it's not inconsistent with the case. and So not inconsistent with the Chapter 11. And so uh, I would note that 1123 also provides that parties may settle and resolve matters. And so there are a number of settlements that are contained within uh, this chapter 11 plan that's entirely appropriate and there are um, third party there are ex, there are exculpations which are permitted under the code and there are third party releases uh, and I find that third party releases are um, appropriate uh, under under a chapter 11 plan um, and and I find support for that um, in terms of the settlement provision uh, under 1123 but also uh, also under 1123 b uh, because it's something uh, that is not inconsistent uh, with Chapter Eleven. Um, and again, I, I really want to provide that there's a difference um, between what is properly known as, well, I guess, what we call the non-consensual third-party releases. Uh, when I would call Purdue Pharma, which is certainly um, a subject of, of lots of uh, writing and and thoughts, and the Supreme Court will will. Has taken the case up and heard oral argument and will uh rule one way or the other on on that um so um but that's not this can't this plan does not contain non-consensual third party releases if it did the court would parties would be asking me to sign an order saying that regardless of what people thought about the plan or what the really what the, the treatment of a claim or, or what rights people had that, that the court would then sign an order essentially imposing the release upon uh, the third party. That's a non-consensual. Even if you don't consent, it's you're stuck. You you must live with it. That is what is being taken up at the Supreme Court. That's not what we have here. Uh, and I'd also note for the record, 1123B uh, three is what the plan can provide for the settlement of any claim or interest belonging to the debtor or to the estate. And I find that. Um, to be very important. So I think uh, non-consensual third-party releases um, can be provided. Uh, The way this third-party release works in this case is parties were uh, in connection with the court's order in 1447. uh, The court authorized a form of an opt-out notice where parties were to receive uh, notice. And if they elected to opt out of the uh, chapter after out of the releases under the plan, there was a form and they could check a box and if they provided notice of it back, um, and those the releasing party um, language in the Chapter 11 Pride provides that uh, if you affirmatively checked it out or if you received notice but didn't elect like to, um, didn't provide notice one way or the other, um, uh, then the fact that you received the notice uh, would bind you to the releases. Um, that is what's provided here. It's not a non-consensual third-party release. They're they're different. So, um, I'll deal with the 1129 standards and then I'll get to the to the Hoffman uh, objection. Um, so, uh, with respect to 1123, I find that every provision of 1123 is appropriate, and as well as the settlements under 1123 B three and and the the provisions under 1123 six. Um, They are appropriate Uh, with respect to Section 1129 based upon the unrefuted evidence, but the court has also conducted an independent review and reviewed the plan carefully. I find that uh, every applicable provision of Section 1129 uh, is uh, satisfied. Uh, The requisite votes are here. The um, structure um, is uh, provided. Um, the, the plan satisfies every applicable provision of 1129, um, and that's unrefuted based upon the declaration. But, but you look at the the code, and you look at the plan, and the plan does satisfy 1129. Um, so, incredible amount of work, and it provides a tremendous recovery for um, both unsecured creditors, right, and also equity holders, including uh, participation in as uh, counsel to the equity right to the equity committee provided um provides a, a really unique opportunity and a really uh, one that you don't see very often uh, a good recovery for unsecure for equity holders. Um so does the plan provide comply with the applicable provisions of chap of chapter eleven, yes. Um uh, within the bankruptcy code, yes. Uh court finds that the plan was provide was um proposed in good faith. And not by any means forbidden by law. So, I'm going to approve the exculpations uh, that are provided for in the plan. I'm going to approve the settlements that are provided under the plan under section 9019, uh, which talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, but again, a plan can contain settlements. 1123B says that you can. Uh, the settlements in this case has been plenty of notice of them, um, and no objection to them, uh, but the court also considers what's in the best interest of the estate, and I do find um, that they do. So um, now we turn to what I would call the the Hoffman objection, which um, is an objection to the um, consensual third-party releases. I I, um, disagree with one of the arguments made by counsel that these are really non-consensual third-party releases. I think if you look at the language in a non-consensual case and you see this one you will know when you're dealing with a non-consensual third party release and when you have a consensual one here there's an opt-out notice where people can affirmatively vote to opt out that was approved under the by the court in uh, the middle of November uh, and that order was never um, that order was never contested but I also uh, and I'll stand on it. I think due process was provided. Uh, those procedures were, uh, there to provide due process notice to parties. Um, and proof of them is that the objecting party actually received notice of that opt-out notice as, as reflected in their objection. Council is affirmative represented and they elected not to, uh, for, um, you know, didn't want to waive the ability to make the argument today. Um, I got it. Some courts may take strong positions on that, but I think um, I, I I'm going to consider the arguments one way or the other today, uh, and whether the the non technically not not returning one, even if you receive them, technically binds you to the to the opt out. So uh, the waiver uh, was going to work one way or the other, um, but they elected not to uh, not to opt out. Um, and and so here we are. So so let me kind of take the arguments up um one by one. And and again, we start with council argues that the text of the bankruptcy code doesn't expressly permit that. I think uh and I'm confirmed that eleven twenty-three B six expressly allows this to happen. It's exactly the type of thing that, that the code permits, right? It's like, as long as it doesn't run afoul anything of the code, this doesn't run afoul. A non consensual third party release. Uh, this is a release between uh which parties have received notice and have the ability to make an informed decision as to whether they choose to be bound by it or or not. Um and they did. Uh many people received notice and that's what they did. I think Mr. Secaritis confirmed on the record uh that to the extent someone uh received a notice and they they're bound by it. But to the extent someone comes in, but they have to come in and just say that they didn't receive notice, right? And, and prove that. I've never heard of this case. I never received notice. Um, and they and they're not bound by that. And I think that's, that's appropriate. Um, I then turn to the support for the relief requested. And again, I, I then turn to, um, what is uncontested. And that is, um, Mr. Goldman's declaration. Mr. Goldman, um, the independent board member, he's not a defendant into class action, um, submitted a declaration, said that the independent board conducted its own investigation, considered, um, whether it would be appropriate to grant, um, whether the estate should offer, um, uh, right, these releases to, to these parties and, and found that it did, and it states its reasons there. Uh, and after conducting an extensive investigation upon uh, potential causes of actions and, and claims, and it talks about when the special committee met and, and the processes that the special committee met and the reasons why. Um, and the special committee, according to Mr. Goldman, reviewed the third-party releases as part of its oversight and supported the inclusion of them um, and felt that there were um, reasons for that the essentially his understanding was that the other party's releases were a material inducement for parties to enter into the RSA, into the settlement. That's unrefuted, uh, and parties could have questioned Mr. Goleman, but they elected not to. Um, whether that's enough, it's enough for me. It's unrefuted. Um, Mr. Goleman is here, parties could have asked him questions, but no one refuted the fact, and certainly the equity committee, creditors committee, debtors, numerous parties. Um, no it's right? It's not the fact that they wouldn't question them. it's the parties material parties are here read the declaration and no one and told me that they support the plan and including which that has to include the third and the excuse me the consensual third party releases so um I think um just looking at that um, certainly gives the court comfort that um what we have here is there subject matter jurisdiction for the court to consider? Certainly there's related to jurisdiction between. Uh, the matters that are subject to the class action, um, and again, that's unrefuted evidence submitted by the debtors in connection with this case that there is a class action pending in the Western District of Texas, and that there are causes of action that relate uh, to things that happen why, that you know when the case you know include actions taken by court itself, right, and that there are uh, litigation. Of matters involving uh, actions taken while members were me- acting uh, as board members of of court right like this is a uh, related to jurisdiction this is clearly related to jurisdiction right it may not arise in connection with the chapter eleven case, but certainly this involves matters that are integral to the chapter eleven case itself. these are estate causes particular estate causes of action right there are Indemnity obligations and all of that is, is completely unrefuted based upon the record and based upon the declaration. So the court finds that the declarations themselves, there's an evidence evidence and there's no evidence to refute it. So I find that there is, um, related to jurisdiction that the court can consider. Now going to the form of the notice. And again, I asked Mr. Kim this a couple of times. Um, there is no party that's standing before the court today who says that they didn't receive the notice. Not one, not one party who is standing here before the court who says that they did not receive the notice or that they didn't understand what the notice said. As a matter of fact, what I did hear that counsel uh, for three, at least three of those members of the class action uh, conducted legal analysis as to whether they should uh, accept and vote uh, opt out of the plan or not. So, so clearly, they, the parties, Mr. Hoffman and other potentially two other parties, certainly uh had really strong legal representation, received the notice, um they they can't come in and say other people didn't receive notice and anything else is just pure hearsay. I don't know who received notice, who didn't receive notice. Um but what the plan does is say is if you did, if you received notice, then you're bound by it, by the by the uh consensual leases if you didn't opt out. Um but if you didn't, then, then you can come into court and say you never received the notice, right? So they're not affected by what happens here today. Um, we just have to conduct a little bit of evidence to determine whether someone is or didn't do it. When you look at the cases as to whether these consensual third party releases are appropriate, uh, the court finds them completely appropriate. Uh, there's been much said about an Eastern District of Virginia case. That, that case is completely different than what's going on here, right? Um, here there is a specific targeted group, uh, and the opt-out mentions the class action. Parties had the ability to read and understand that there was a class action and potential settlement of claims that relate to this Chapter 11 case and that relate to the estate and that the estate has the ability to settle. under And either they opted out or they didn't, um, and they received notice. And if they received notice, then, then they're bound by it. Uh, Mr. Him is, is purporting to represent, again, parties who many people who filed proofs of claim in this case. They were smart enough to go file proofs of claim in this case, receive notice in this case. And I've heard no evidence that these individuals uh, are not um, capable of reading and understanding what that notice said or did. And quite frankly, we held a hearing as to whether the adequacy of the notice is already um, considered. And that was done in the middle of November. So uh, I, I also question whether Mr. Kim has the standing to object for other people who are not present here today. But even taking the legal argument on its face, uh, certainly his clients knew and understood. He's a really smart lawyer, and he articulated that he understood exactly what what was purported to um, be released, um, and they made decisions and. It's not for this court to make a decision today as to what the legal effect of that is. It's it, The legal effect is what it is, and it will have whatever effect that it has. But are these consensual third-party releases appropriate? Absolutely. All right? The debtor has provided the support as to why it chose to include that in the plan. The, are, there's a consensual. The creditors committee, the equity committee, has reviewed these plans. No objection to that. Uh, they are well aware of their constituencies, equity, and uh, unsecured creditors. Of all, these committees have reviewed no objection to that, no objection that it was a material inducement to entering into it. Um, and debtors have provided uh, uncontested evidence that that's the case. So when you look at all of that, are these consensual releases appropriate? They are. If parties have received notice, the opt-out notice is appropriate. It happens all the time in Chapter 11 cases. Um, and the fact that these are securities, plaintiffs, um, the court uh, understands um, that there could be mom and pops uh, involved here. And mom and pop unsecured creditors too, right? Is mom and pop uh, secure creditors sometimes in cases, right? And so so you certainly consider that, and that's why you look at the form of the notice way up front and consider who may receive this notice and whether they can make an informed decision at that time in connection with the opt-out notice. So um, there's really two layers of analysis that go on. One is at the time with the, the ballot and approving the form of ballot. That's when I, I really take a hard look at that and make make a determination that whoever is going to receive this, whether they're sophisticated uh, or unsophisticated. And I don't like to also make the generalization that mom and pops are an unsophisticated, and so I'm going to reject any... Um, plenty of really, really smart people out there, um, but I got it. Uh, maybe not everybody can read and understand that, um, but we took care of that in, in the middle of November. I found that it was appropriate, and no one challenged that. I look at the notice again, the the notice prescriptions. I read the ballot again, and I find that it's appropriate, and it worked. People did opt out. Why so many people? Why a number of people opted out? have any evidence as to the number and the why. The question is, as a matter of law, is it appropriate to have it in? Yes, and there's no case that parties can cite that finds that it's inappropriate. No binding case, on certainly on this court. Right? Non-consensual, well, there's an argument, but we don't have non-consensual here. Um, this is a purely consensual, and people were provided the opportunity, and parties were either provided notice of it or not. Um, and so, um, now, that includes members of the class action, but that also includes members of unsecure claims, I'm um, going to find that it's appropriate. It's, it's certainly permissible under the law, and the evidence supports it, and there's no evidence going the other way. So I'm going to approve the uh, consensual releases as part of the plan. I'm going to approve the settlements um, that are contained um, in the plan. I'm going to approve... Um, The, well, I've already approved the declarations that are submitted um, in connection with with plan confirmation. Um, I did note that Mr. Binford had one kind of reservation of rights here in connection with kind of rejection damages, and it sounds like that's going to be worked out. But to the extent I need to, I'm also going to um, support um, his his ability to kind of reserve his rights. I'm going through my notes here. <laughs> I do know that there were some other um, supplements provided uh, in connection with the plan supplement. I'm going to find that those uh, supplements are, are, are approved as part of this confirmed plan, and it does not require any additional solicitation in connection with uh, the plan. That they were non-material uh, modifications. I, I would also note. Um, I know that there was a lot of discussion about. Mawa, uh, I, I, I think Judge Isker, and again, I don't just read cases just because Isker approves something that I agree with it or not agree with it. And I don't think he does the same thing for me. Uh, but I do think the reasoning in the Houston regional case, uh, is really instructive here. And I think it's the right analysis, right? Um, the debtor could potentially be liable based upon the outcome. Um, and I can exercise, uh, third-party releases the impact on the securities litigation there's a conceivable effect on the debtors ability to issue indemnification and nobody refuted that um, and I, I think it, it's really really important the, the indemnity obligation weighs heavily on me here um, so um, what else can I say I think I have jurisdiction They've satisfied their procedures in connection with this case. I've already approved them. Uh, I think, um, and again, um, I, I know there was a request to do an omnibus opt-out. I think I didn't, for the reason stated on the record, and I stand on that, I uh, did not allow an omnibus claim, I'm not allowing an omnibus opt-out. Uh, Those parties who chose to opt-out had the ability to do so. Um, so, I'm going to overrule the objection. Um, I think it complies with the letter of the bankruptcy code. Uh, the text of the code permits it. Um, the unrefuted evidence before the court establishes sufficient basis. All the other provisions of Section 1129 are approved um, and satisfy 1129 and 1123. The settlements are approved. Um, so, again, um. Mr. Carlson, I've reviewed the proposed, uh, confirmation order. Is, I know that there were some additional, um, language that was added. Is there something else that I need to consider in connection with this? Or is, does anyone wish to make a comment on the proposed confirmation order? I know there's been enough thanks of Judge Isker and I've already given him. I'm not going to thank him anymore, uh, for all of his hard work here. I just, let me just turn to the confirmation order. Uh, Mr. Carlson, is there something um, I need to think about? Are there any additional tweaks coming or should I, re- is the proposed form of order um, that was filed at 1741, the version that we need to look at? That's, you know, that's um, final from the debtor's
1: perspective and the, the changes we made were clean up and then one one additional paragraph that our, our diploma requested that I believe everyone signed off on.
0: Okay. We just to, uh, um, let me just ask you, does the order, I reviewed the red line, so I haven't looked at the clean. Uh, does the clean attach the, the right plan to it, or is that something I need to do? It does. Right. Just give me a second. Okay. Um, I've got a, an 11.30 that I told we we're going to start at 12, and now it looks like it's going to start around 12.15. So I'll turn to that. Mr. Carlson, I'll, I'll get that signed on on the docket. My, my real thanks to all the parties um, here today. Uh, congratulations. Um, I was not here when the case started, um, but I'm happy to have been a part um, at the connection with the confirmation of this case. Um, sounds like an incredible work was done, incredible value has been preserved for parties. Um, I appreciate the arguments of Mr. Kim uh, as well. I think it um, gives me even more confidence. Um, and I think parties are entitled to come in and, and, and object. And, and that's part of the process. And so I think uh, the process worked just fine today. Uh, parties were able to appear. Um, and I'm glad that we were able to, to all kind of conduct ourselves and not be able to lose anything by going proceeding by video today. I think it was entirely appropriate to do so. Um, and so my, my thanks to, to all the professionals involved. Um, we'll see each other another day. Um, for those who are here for the 1130, uh, now the 1215, I'm going to just give five minutes and allow parties for the core, for core to, uh, kind of clear off. And then we'll start with the, um, status conference. I'm going to start in five minutes. Your
1: Honor, um, I, thanks, Ron. I hate to interrupt. We have a couple of things left on the. Oh, that's right. You
0: have other stuff. That's right. Well, yep. I lied. I lied, Twelve, fifteen. There's some other stuff. That's right. Okay. Uh, those are the additional settlements, right? Yeah, you
1: should. Yeah. You
0: Good. Should. I'm glad you spoke up. Thank you. Let's take them up.
1: So we have we have two settlement motions, uh, a disputed claims motion, and an uncontested uh, substantial contribution claim motion filed by um, the equity group. So starting with the, the motion to approve the settlement with Oklahoma Gas and Electric, that's that docket number 1711. Um, Mr. Bullitt-Rose is our declarant in support of that motion, uh, 1725 is this declaration. This is a pretty straightforward settlement. They, they provided electricity. O- O'Gini provided electricity to the debtors, Muscogee facility, prepetition. petition. We have an executory contract with them that we, we seek to assume. Um, and as part of assuming that agreement, um, we made some amendments to that agreement, and we're settling their cure claim. Uh, in the form of an allowed general and secured claim. They have filed an eight million dollar, approximately eight million dollar, um, claim in connection with some, construction some, uh, of a, of a substation facility. Um, eight million dollar claim. They've settled it. We settled with them for 4.8 million, uh, as an allowed general and security claim. Um, and we've made some amendments to the, to the amended agreement going forward. Um, in, including the requirement that they provide, um, they have Provide operational electric electrical capacity about less than 100 megawatts for for five years, and so we think that the settlement is beneficial uh, to the debtors. Um, the one the one thing I would note, I believe our ad hoc noteholder uh, group is still reviewing the agreement, and they have a consent right. They've asked that the court hold off just for a day or so uh, until they can they can rest, they can get their consent that they need from their clients uh, before entering it, but still wanted to present the motion. And, um, ask the court of that's that's for
0: that's that's for the one at 1711? That's correct. Okay. Um, does anyone wish to be heard in connection with this motion?
1: Yeah, Your Honor, it's uh, Chris Hansen with Paul Hastings, again, on behalf of the Ad Hoc Committee. Uh, Mr. Carlson's right, Your Honor, we're still discussing the emergency motion with our clients. Um, we may have some issues with the, the construct in which it's being paid, which could include equity, I, I think our thought is it's much better and much more preferable to effectively assume this and pay a cure cost in cash. But we'll talk to the debtors more about that.
0: Okay, so what do you want me to? What do? What are the parties asking me to do today? Kind of, how do you want me to handle this, Mister
1: Carlson? I think we. I think if we could, we could reach out to Chambers over the next day or two to give a status update as to where we're at and
0: we can let you know that okay. forward once we, we get to the agreement. Okay, that works for me.
1: Mr. Hanson, that worked for you? It does, Your
0: Honor. Okay, do you think by Friday uh, someone can just reach out to my case manager one way or the other and just let her know kind of if we need to do something or if there's just hold off? Yes, no, no problem do
1: that.
0: Okay. Thank you. Um,
1: so from there we go to... Um, the foundry settlement motion that filed at docket number 1712. Uh, this is another, I think, straightforward, uh, claim settlement, uh, motion here. Foundry, um, the debtors host Foundry's uh, uh, equipment mining, uh, uh equipment miners. And, uh, in connection with a, a transaction preposition uh, they have asserted an 18 million dollar claim approximately. We seek to settle that claim for, for a five and a half million dollar allowed general unsecured claim, um, and um and also uh, intend to assume the hosting agreement, uh, and pay any cure, cure costs associated with it. I think as of today, uh, there aren't any cure amounts. Um, so that's, those are the terms of the, of the settlement that we'd like to move forward and ask the court Enter the order, uh, filed with the motion at docket number
0: 1712. Anyone wish to be heard in connection with this motion? Okay, uh, the court did have an opportunity to review this. I believe emergency consideration is appropriate under the circumstances that are settling a claim um, with Foundry. Uh, the court has considered the revised settlement agreement, um, finds that it is appropriate, satisfies business judgment, and is a sound exercise of the debtor's business judgment. And there are certain, it's in the best interest of the estate. So I will grant the Settlement at 1712.
1: Thank you. Uh, so the last item that the debtors have on the agenda is our disputed claims motion. We filed that in early December. Um, That's, you know, in connection with our plan and implementation of the plan, uh, we seek a, a court order basically establishing the maximum amount of claims that each of our, our remaining contingent and unliquidated and disputed claims can recover on. And we're doing that for purposes of, of being able to determine the appropriate share count and distributions of shares on the effective dates of those holders that you know have a lot of claims with, and, and existing equity holders. Um, you know, fortunately, we've we've been able to resolve, I think, the vast majority of our of our outstanding disputed claims, but there are still some um, some disputed claims that we're going to have to sort through post post-emergence. So the order essentially seeks to, to cap what those claims would be. Um, and I believe no no pending objections uh, from any of the parties. Um, the one thing I will note is we reached a settlement an agreement in principle with with two of the claimants that are on one of our schedules, um, and so we do need to make a few updates based on those on, on the settlement that was reached, where they're going to basically move from our disputed claim schedule to our allowed claim schedule, and so it'll it'll have a slight impact on the ultimate amount of. Uh, Shares or, or claim amount that are being set aside for executing holders, but uh, we would intend to file later today um, the updated the updated schedules to reflect that.
0: Is that going to change the the order itself, Mr. Carson? Are you going to submit like or did, what, it what are will, you on?
1: Yeah, it'll change just the exhibit to the order, and so we'll file just up, We'll just we'll just file an an, a, an order with an updated schedule attached to it, and you know, with the red line.
0: Okay. Anyone wish to be heard in connection with this motion? Okay. Um, in connection, the court has already approved confirmation of the plan. This is an, kind of a logical next step to the relief requested in connection with the plan confirmation Um Court's going to find that emergency consideration is, is appropriate, and and I will approve, uh, it I will approve, uh, the relief requested in the motion, subject to, uh, a. Change to the schedules, uh, which is reflecting a further settlement. Mr. Carlson will upload, or have someone upload an order, uh, and and just reach out to Miss Saldaña today.
1: Well, thank you, are.
0: Okay. Um, What do I the substantial contribution is that set for today or is that something party's still thinking about it? What I know it's it's still out there.
1: My my understanding is it's not contested and um, somebody from the schedule I think this heard this certain needs later is that progressive.
0: All right. Um, someone can someone confirm whether this is all right. Does anyone have any objection to that relief requested? Mr. Meisler, I think, hold on, let me see if I can get you here.
1: Your Honor, while we wait for Mr. Meisler, this is Mr. Hansen again with Paul Hastings on behalf of the Ad High Committee. Uh, we did withdraw our objection and I believe we we'll are the sole objection to the scattering application for substantial contributions. So I, I think with that, it's uncontested, but obviously Mr. Meisler. No, no, I just, I,
0: I just like to hear it on the record just to make sure because sometimes You know, it's just easier for someone to confirm (laughs) than for me to figure it out. So uh, I appreciate it. Um, Mr. Moser, there was an order, a proposed order, I think, with the motion. Is that the one that you still want me to sign?
1: Good afternoon, Your Honor. Can you hear me okay? Yes.
0: Yes, you can say good afternoon. That's right. We're (laughs) shifting.
1: All right. That's true. Twelve twenty-four. Uh, Your, Your Honor, we had from the official equity committee, we had a request to add one paragraph into the proposed order, which just states what we already said in our papers, uh, which is that if we, if we get paid in full, we'd reimburse all the members of the ad hoc group that have already paid. And if we don't get paid in full, then to the extent that, that we are paid in, uh, in amounts, it would reduce the total amount owed oh, and if there is enough, we, we would reimburse pro-rata to each member. So, how
0: do you propose to, are you?
1: We, we would submit a revised order, Your Honor.
0: Okay. Mr. Meyers, why don't you go ahead and do that and if you can reach out to my case manager, I will approve. Uh, there was one objection, uh, that rejection has been withdrawn, uh, the court. Uh, which means that really this has been no objection to this motion it has been uh, filed for some time the court i did have an opportunity to review it and consider it i find that the relief requested appropriate um based upon all the work that has been done uh, to get to this point um court doesn't grant these lightly every case um, needs to be considered on its own Um, and the fact that there's been no objection doesn't mean that the court will grant these in another case so i think everybody should i was sending a message it's it's every case stands on its own but in this case i do uh take a look at the record and take a look at the the, the lack of the support for uh the on that lack of opposition here uh and i will grant the relief requested mr Meisler. just go ahead and submit a revised order and and i'll and i'll get it signed
1: thank you your honor
0: okay all righty folks mr carlson is there anything else I O L today that's it thank you. oh all righty folks thank you very much and again congratulations to everyone